Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're turning to the great crisis that is engulfing Africa and mostly West Africa, with state after state falling to military takeovers, creating what has been called a coup belt stretching from Guinea in the west to Sudan in the east. This summer alone we've had a coup in Niger and in Gabon just last week. The question we're going to ask this week is, what is geopolitically happening in West Africa and why does it matter? Well, army officers in Burkina Faso have announced the overthrow of military leader Paul Henry Damiba. Leaders of a military coup in the West African nation of Mali. Now leaders from across West Africa are set to meet for an emergency summit following the coup in Niger. Army officers have appeared on national television in Gabon claiming they've taken power. The French ambassador, we want him to go back. The soldiers in Camboinsen, we all want them to go back. I am here to demand the departure of French troops from Niger. I believe our policy is the correct one. It's based on the courage of President Bazoum, on the efforts of our diplomats and our ambassador in Niger, who will stay despite pressure from coup leaders. Because the Gabonese regime is considered a dictatorship. And we believe that France, through the arrival of Macron in Gabon, is simply supporting the Bongo dictatorship. The Russians are correcting the mistakes that others have committed, like the French. Russia has never colonized an African country. It must be said that Russia is a great partner in terms of security, especially in our country. So, Helen, we're going to just recap what's gone on for people so they've got a, an idea of the extraordinary scale of this crisis. So the coups really started in 2020, or these particular set of coups. So in August 2020, we had a coup in Mali. Then in April 21, Chad. September 21, Guinea. October 21, Sudan. Then in January 2022, we had Burkina Faso. And then again in September of that year, the same country. In July 2023, so this year, we had Niger. And then last week, Gabon. So this is 
a kind of extraordinary situation and it doesn't even paint the entire picture of what's happening in Africa. So you've got terrible situations in Ethiopia, Eritrea, total chaos in Eastern Congo and problems in northern Mozambique. So this is a really big story and too big really to deal with in, in one episode. So today we mostly want to focus on West Africa and Francophone Africa in particular because there's a particular story going on here, Helen, with dramatic implications for Europe, the United States, Russia, China, and Turkey, crucially. Yeah, I think the first thing that we need to see is is that these coups in West Africa, different things are going on in different places, but there's three of these countries that we can put together and say that there's a very strong anti-French, anti-imperial French yeah. dimension to them. That is also bound up, as we'll see, with the conflict in Libya. And, and those three countries are Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger. And the reason why this matters in terms of the French position is because in each case, the military government that has come in has either ended or trying to end, in the case of Niger, the security agreement that the previous governments have had with France. And if you take Mali, for instance, where the French troops had been there since 2000 and um, 13, the French troops had been there basically at the intervention of a previous Mali government in Mali to support the Mali government in acting against Islamic State-backed rebels yep. in the north of the country. And what we're seeing now in Niger is something similar playing out. And what's important to see here is the fact that the French, having effectively been booted out of Mali, retreated militarily, made Niger their military base for their operations in the Sahel. So what that means is that if the French military is kicked out of Niger, then the French position in West Africa militarily in terms of the fight against Islamic State has effectively gone. If we then look at Mali, what happened in Mali after the French were kicked out, the new Mali government invited the Wagner group Right. In, to do the fighting. Instead Infamous of, Russian, you know. After we said with not a great deal of success. Right. In, in fact, I think that the Islamic State groups have effectively doubled the territory that they have there since the Wagner Group's intervention. Now, in that sense, I think you could frame this as kind of like French versus Russian, but I think that that really oversimplifies it because, it, as you've already said, Tom, we've got the United States involved. The United States has its second biggest military base in Africa, in Niger. Yeah. We've got China involved. China is, if we go to Gabon, then China is a pretty significant importer of metals from right. Gabon. Turkey's got deep commercial interests across the region. It's got a military agreement with the previous Niger government. And Niger is important in terms of the migration pass out of Africa. And the Italian government is very concerned on that. Potential right. for like a, a migration crisis in Europe all over again if that region is destabilized. Absolutely. And what we can see has gone on in since the coup in, in Niger in July is that a group of West African states headed essentially by Nigeria had set a deadline for sometime in the first week of August, the military to hand power back to the elected president who was ousted yeah. and said if they're deadline wasn't met, there would be military intervention. But that deadline wasn't met and there hasn't been military intervention because it's very clear that it would be incredibly domestically divisive in Nigeria for military intervention to take place. Algeria has also been opposed to it. The two other 
essentially anti-French governments, the one in Mali and in Burkina Faso, said they would militarily intervene if Nigeria and its allies were to um, yeah. intervene. And it's like the domino effect. A- absolutely. Of it. So you've got the potential for a, a regional military conflict. And if you look at it then from the European point of view, the French Macron appears like he's been quite keen on saying it would be quite helpful from the French point of view if there was such a regional military intervention, maybe that France would back it. But from the Italian point of view, the Italian foreign minister said, look, this would be an absolute catastrophe yeah, because of the migration consequences of another conflict. Yeah. And then you've got the United States doesn't want to get involved. It doesn't, it hasn't really wanted to get involved in Africa since Black Hawk Down. Britain doesn't want to get involved. China doesn't get involved. So it's very, on the one hand, you can see the domino effects easily. You can see how that could happen. But on the same time, it looks like nobody wants to get involved. Absolutely. And that's a problem for the French. And I think that's where we need to start, really, with the reason why this is such an important part of the world for the French. Yeah, I've been speaking to French diplomats about this. And they tell that story of what happened in French Africa, what is still referred to as kind of France-Afrique, after decolonization. And it was a very different story to British decolonization. That's the first thing I think we need to understand is that they didn't leave in the same way that we left. They kept a much closer ties with with West Africa. They had a currency ties. They had close connections, intergovernmental connections. They had military presence still in these places. So, you know, it, it worked on a, even an informal basis. So I was told how French government, if they had a problem, say, with deporting Algerians, if there had been, a, say, a criminal who the French government wanted to deport, the Algerian government said no, the French government would say, get on the phone to our to our allies in West Africa and sort something out. And something would usually be sorted out. That is going or has gone. And that's the scale of what's happening here. The, the, all those ties are being broken partly because the younger generation are anti-French, anti, they see the French as colonizers and are reacting against that. And the French officials will say, this is a core part of the story. The older generations had a different relationship with France. And so it's just an extraordinary tale of a sort of slow decolonization that's suddenly happening right now. Yeah, I think that what we can see is, as you said, Tom, is that there was not an initial decolonization, except in a formal yeah. sense. Yeah. And that meant that there were a number of these countries where the French from the start kept a military presence. Mm-hmm. Mali, I think, wasn't one of them. I think we, we do need to get onto the Libya story because that's part of the explanation about why the French military was particularly active in a number of countries, Mali and Niger, over the last decade or so. But it is important, I think, to see that the French have had a history of military interventions in West Africa since independence. I think in the Central African Republic, I think the French have intervened militarily seven times wow. since independence. Then, as you said as well, then there's been this currency union, which for a long time, and it's not entirely clear how far this has actually ended over the last few years, involved the members of the currency union having to effectively leave a fairly high proportion of their foreign exchange reserves in the Bank of France. This is kind of what 
Britain used to have with the pound, but not with a currency union. But we had these kind of ties that went a long, long time Well, the ago. sterling area, which was pretty important, really, to the way in which we went through the Second World War. Right. For instance. Yeah. But in the 70s, we the sterling area was wound down. It was interesting. I mean, this is a little bit, little bit of an aside. But one of the reasons why de Gaulle said that second time round, that Britain shouldn't be in the European economic community. So when he vetoed Britain's membership in November um, 67, he said that your imperial currency block <laughs> area was one of the reasons it didn't fit in this European <laughs> project. But whereas the French retained this. Now, Macron, I wouldn't say he pushed through. It would be more, I think, fair to say he agreed some changes to this formally in 2019 I think that it was, but it's not so clear in practice whether it really has been reformed. And there's no doubt that this currency block or however we want to describe it has caused pretty considerable resentment. Now, that isn't to say that there have not been elites in these countries that have benefited very much from the kind of financial monetary arrangements that are still yeah. in place. But that speaks, I think, to the fact that there have been these shared patronage networks that extend from France into a number of these West African countries. So if you look at the big, major, huge corruption scandal that was involving one of the French energy companies in the early 2000s, it's very clear that the money from African countries was going into the coffers of like French politicians. Right, yeah. And I think if I'm right in saying that Libya is a, a different example in the sense it's not a, wasn't a French colony, it was an Italian colony. But Sarkozy looks like he's going to face trial the former French president for taking donations from illegal donations from Gaddafi. So French domestic politics is bound up with North and West Africa. Too. Yeah, there's like these total tension and how closely they're interconnected. Just when you mentioned de Gaulle, another slight aside, I guess, but there was a French diplomat I was speaking to said de Gaulle would have this. He would look to Britain and how... Britain's relationship had managed its relationship with Africa and he said even in the textbooks of French schools in French West Africa they would teach them the same thing as in France that our ancestors are the Gauls and he said this was so ludicrous in West Africa and this French official was just reflecting he says we've just got this totally different understanding and relationship with our former colonies than Britain does and that just changes, that just has this effect on politics that is we're seeing today. And one reason for this, we should make clear, is it's a resource question. I don't think it can simply be reduced to the resource question. Yeah. But there's no doubt that this is a the significant part of it. So if we just take the two countries where the coups have happened this summer, so in Niger and in Gabon. In Gabon, which is an oil producer, it's a member of PEC, the former ruler of Gabon, the father of the son who's just been ousted, who ruled Gabon for 41 years, said Gabon without France is like a car without a driver. France without Gabon is like a car without fuel. Right. And that sums up quite yeah. a lot. If we take Niger, the thing that's important there is the uranium. So about a quarter of France's uranium for its nuclear power comes from Niger. It's been the third largest importer into France. And France, as we know, proportionately uses nuclear power in a completely different way to any other country in the world. I think saying that it's the only country where the single biggest source of energy in the energy mix is nuclear. So that, and that's bound up with internal French 
security, energy security, its geopolitical power. You know, EDF is an extraordinary French business that has influence and power in Britain. And that's that must it's all bound up in the same story. It is. And I think if we sort of make a comparison like with, with Germany, for yeah. instance, there's obviously something pretty big went on in terms of domestic politics in West Germany in the 1970s that explains the turn away from nuclear power. After all, the Green Party in West Germany was born out of the civil protests against nuclear power. But there's also a really differing story about the geopolitics of West Germany. In Colonial the story. To, yeah, than France. West Germany was looking in the 1970s at having to import enriched uranium from the United States. And that was a clear vulnerability in energy security terms, because by the end of that decade, Carter was essentially prohibiting the export of enriched uranium to anybody. Whereas the French were never dependent for uranium on the United States. I mean, there was Soviet in both cases too, but the French had the arrangements in place in Africa, particularly in, in Niger. And that the reason why that they had that opportunity in the way in West Germany didn't was to do with their colonial history. So it must be a shock to France that this is happening. I mean, I remember even speaking to people in, in Downing Street when the French were intervening in Mali. And, you know, Boris Johnson was very gung-ho in his support for President Macron. This was seen as a, you know, a good fight against the jihadists that France was doing, was fighting on the West's behalf in certain ways. It was meeting its responsibilities. But in essence, they've been defeated. But now Macron, I think, puts out strong defense of his record in Africa and says, you know, without our intervention, Mali would be in trouble or wouldn't even exist. Jihadists would have taken over, you know, so we did well. But I think that's a hard sell. If you speak to officials off the record, they're, look, it might not be Macron's fault. This is a bigger story going on, but this is a disaster for French influence. They're just losing their influence. I think we need, though, at this point to bring in more recent yeah. history in terms of a change anyway. Yeah, so and why is this happening? Why is this happening in terms of particularly the French military position and what happened in Mali and essentially the retreat into Niger that is now under such threat. And to do that, we need to talk about what happened in Libya in 2011. And that and brings Britain into the story yeah, as the, well. The civil war, which was effectively emerging in Libya in the wake of the Arab Spring armed resistance to Gaddafi's regime, and then NATO's intervention. Yeah. Yeah. You speak to correspondents in Africa or officials, anyone, and they will say it's a, just a total disaster. Not just a disaster for Libya, but that intervention completely destabilized the region. And you speak to any African leader, somebody was saying to me, and they're still spitting feathers about the intervention in 2011. It caused chaos in Libya, obviously, that we know. It affected migration patterns. Guns started pouring south into the Sahel. They were saying gold mining routes, people smuggling routes. This was just a disaster that bled not only north in the way that we've seen it, but it bled south in a way that is, we're now having to deal with. Without understanding that story, you can't understand Mali and then you can't understand everything. This bleed across the whole of Africa. No, if we go back to that, the Arab Spring beginning in 2011, there was a great deal of hope being expressed in a number of Western countries, the United States and Britain, certainly in government circles. This was 
so to speak, the arrival of democracy in the Arab world. There was a huge amount of gung-ho optimism yep. at the beginning. I think things started in Tunisia, into Egypt, into Libya. And I think that Syria ended up with a lot of attention. I think there's all kinds of things about the 2010s we can't understand without understanding the fallout of the Syrian civil war yeah. and the interventions there. But the Libyan one, I think, is just as important. And one of the things that's striking about it is the way in which Obama backed it. And obviously it was US-led, but pretty much as soon as it was over, he was saying, oh, this is a this is for the French and the British. Yeah, we just provided cover and the logistical support. It's in their neighbourhood. They should deal with it. But it's really clear that the British and the French weren't in any position to deal with the mess that they'd been party to. And as you said, there's a question of like refugees yeah. coming into Europe, but just as importantly, in fact, probably what we're talking about really crucially, there was this just flow of weapons yeah. into yeah. essentially the desert parts of Mali and Niger. And that led to another front in the war against Islamic State. And so by that point, if we go to 2013, the year in which the French intervened in Mali. So this was when Francois Hollande was yeah. president. This is also the year later when Obama ignores the red line that he <laughs> yes. drew about chemical weapons in Syria that's used by the Assad regime. And what you see then for France, I think, is 2013 is a kind of like nightmare year for them in that respect because Hollande had come in and he'd been really critical about French intervention in Western Africa. He explicitly said that he wanted to end it. Yeah. He wanted to draw a line and say, this is not the way that France is going to behave any longer. And then there he is in the second year of his presidency, ordering French troops into Mali to, to fight these Islamic jihadist insurgents. And then later in the year is that when Obama won't keep his red line in Syria, and indeed the British pull out of that intervention as well first as we know always against the military attacks then Hollande's basically having to do his own thing on Islamic State in Syria and Iraq as well yeah we should turn to this after the break but this is this story clearly says so much about the world we're living in today and it seems to me it talks about western weakness western division western botched interventions that create a kind of chaos that then just unfolds that we can't control and we just have to pull back from. It talks about Russia and how Russia was furious with the Libyan intervention and has responded. Well, remember it. that Russia had actually, Putin had actually been willing to back it, mm. what he didn't think he was authorising, because I think it had gone through the United Nations. Yeah, yeah. What he didn't think he was authorising was the actual murder and overthrow of yeah. Gaddafi. They still talk about it, right, being duped, essentially. And that then has implications with for in Syria. And so, yeah, and then it talks about Turkey. And I think also, and this is what we'll get into after the break, but it talks about a new world that it's emerging, multipolar world, vacuums of power where other security interests will step in and commercial interests. Yeah, just one thing I think we should say before we turn to that implications is what then happened in Libya. So yeah. that after Gaddafi had been overthrown, by 2014, Libya was plunged back into civil war. Yeah. And what you can then see is that by the end of the decade, the two states that become most involved in that conflict are not the British and the French. Yeah. They're the Russians and Turkey. 
Yeah. And despite the fact that there'd been some Russian-Turkish rapprochement about a number of other issues, what we see in like 2020 in particular is a real division because the Turkish government decides militarily itself to intervene in Libya in 2020 and support what had been deemed by internationally the legitimate government, while the Russians were backing a rebel government that controlled a not insignificant part of Libyan territory. So we get really direct Russian-Turkish competition in Libya on top of all these other fault lines that were there. And then that's part of the context in which that Russian-Turkish competition is also then part of what then spreads down into West Africa, which is where we are now. Yeah, and let's turn to that after the break. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Vivid picture of the Wagner Group's activities in Central Africa, where it's accused of propping up dictatorships in return for minerals that help fund its paramilitary activities around the world. So, Tom, we just were talking about the involvement of Russia and Turkey in Libya. And as we talked about right at the beginning of the episode, the Wagner Group has been involved in Mali since the, the yeah. French left. So let's just try and concentrate on the Russia angle to this for a moment and the role of the Wagner Group. What is going on here? What are Russian interests in West Africa? Can we talk about Russian interests when it's the Wagner Group, given what's happened to the Wagner Group just this yeah. uh, summer? And how much does it tie or in what ways does it tie to the central geopolitical question for Russia, which is Ukraine? Yeah, when you're dealing with Russia, Helen, it just seems incredibly complicated to try and understand what is going on. It's a mafia state in a way. So how do you know what is a Russian interest, an oligarchical interest, a Wagner interest? How are they all connected? That's very difficult. But look, when you're trying to understand this, I've been speaking to people experts on the ground. You know, I was speaking to the economist, excellent chief John McDermott about this. And he was saying, look, when you look at Russian intervention on the ground, it's patchy, it's opportunistic. There is something anarchic about it. It's finding opportunities and exploiting them and sort of offering gun for hire as a service. So the Wagner Group is able to work with anyone who will pay them to do whatever they want to do. And they're brutal about it. And you can't understand what's going on without thinking of what's going on in Russia. And so 
a lot of the discussions I had, they took me back to 2014 and the intervention in Crimea. And they were saying from that point on, you can see a real uptick in Russia's interventions or presence in Africa. And part of that is about look, getting their hands on gold and things like that to prop up the Russian currency, which is going to suffer under sanctions and the rest. Part of it is diplomatic. You want friends in the global south because, you know, the rest of the world is turning against you or much of the world is turning against you. So you want allies. And so to have allies, you have to have influence. You have to offer them something there. And the other part of this, which is interesting and again, incredibly complicated, is internal elite political bargaining going on in Russia. So if oligarchs are being sanctioned, get oligarchs a payday in Africa, give them carte blanche to start operating in parts of Africa where Western countries don't want to touch. And part of this is Wagner. And so Wagner sits at the heart of all of this. So it's intervening in places with the Kremlin's okay, or so it seems, making money for people who are important to the stability of the Russian regime, and also causing problems for the West. So it's all bound up. It is hard not to look at Russia as this kind of anarchic state who's furthering crises in, in places. I mean, but in the Africa. question here is, what is the fate of the Wagner group now? Yeah. After the events yep. of this summer? Well, they seem to be being brought back into the Ministry of Defence, don't they? So it's a kind of, they're being nationalised. So that must tell us something about, they were never completely detached from the Russian state. They are some kind of arm. And somebody else described it to me as, you have these companies in the West that will have presence, will have a presence in some part of the world. And once they have a presence in some part of the world, Shell or BP or... ExxonMobil, say, for a Western company, if they have a presence in Africa, then the state will kind of follow behind them to protect that interest because it's part of your country's interest. So that's how somebody was describing it to me, how you could start to understand Wagner. If Wagner involved in these places, then the Russian state is involved. But I think there is also though a difference here, isn't there, is that Russia is an energy self-sufficient country. Yeah. And it is also a mineral-rich country, not all minerals. Yeah. It would seem that the metal that the Wagner Group has been most interested in is gold, for the reasons that you said, because that ties to the financial and monetary position of Russia. I think what's striking in this respect is that Russia is not anywhere near as strategic a player, perhaps, in the region as say China or Turkey or France, because it doesn't have the same energy, it doesn't have the same resource interest for the state itself. What it has is these complicated patronage, basically networks yeah. and needing to keep various oligarchs paid, etc. That's bound up with the more opportunistic way in which it does. But I mean, I'm just speculating. It could be the case that with a much weaker Wagner group, that doesn't matter so much that Russia might not be so important as a player. But I think the country that we should make a comparison with here is China. Yeah. Because China is obviously committed to having a resource-centric strategy. It, it's not influencing, self- yeah, yeah, in which is nowhere near resource-sufficient, a resource-centered strategy in this part of Africa. Yeah, I mean, just as you were speaking there, I was looking at my notes and it says, you know, in Mali, you had the rebels in the north who almost took the capital at one point. These rebels control a load of gold mines. 
you can understand what's going on here, even just with that sort of sentence. And the way I was thinking about Russia and China, and as you say, China being strategic and Russia perhaps being opportunistic, is they both do something that the West won't do or can't do, or has decided it can't do. So in Russia, they opportunistically offer the services of the Wagner Group to states that are looking for some kind of security protection. And they will also attack their opponents, their internal opponents, in a way that the French wouldn't do or the UN wouldn't do. So they'll go after their political opponents and try and suppress them as well as other kind of insurgent rebels that the West are interested in. So that's one side of this ledger, that Wagner is just brutal. And so they are attractive for a regime that whose legitimacy is uncertain, questioned internally. And also it's interesting that the Russian flag is becoming a symbol of kind of liberation in parts of these West African countries. It's being flown on the streets. And as it was described to me, it's like a Che Guevara t-shirt. It doesn't necessarily mean that these people are know everything about Che Guevara or the Russian system. What they're doing is it's an anti-French symbol. It's a symbol of opposition to the old colonial power. And then turning to China, what China offers is economic partnership in a way that the West no longer does. So it's China seems to be the number one trade partner for virtually all of these countries that we're talking about and beyond in most African countries. And they are everywhere. So whereas R Russian presence is dotted around and it's in opportunistic places, Central African Republic, China is everywhere. And not just the state, this is important, I think, it's businessmen, it's commercial interests. And they are prepared to intervene and take risks in a way that the West no longer does. So again, as it was described to me, you'll have a situation where a Western company will come in to do to build something. It'll take years and years to get this thing done. The World Bank, apparently, it takes an average of eight years to do a construction project. The Chinese will get it done in two. They'll just get it built. A Western company will demand that its executives are put up in a five-star hotel with all the treatment, security, and all the rest. A Chinese businessman from the middle of China somewhere will just be found in the middle of Zimbabwe or in Tanzania taking risks. And it was described as almost like a Victorian businessman trying to make a quick buck in Africa. That's how to understand the Chinese. So in a sense, both are doing something that the West just doesn't want to do. It doesn't want to get its hands dirty. It doesn't want to get involved in internal disputes for very good reasons. It certainly doesn't want to commit the kind of crimes that the Wagner Group is doing. And it doesn't want to take the commercial risks and put in the hard work and do the things that African governments need. I think there's another issue here, which is about the different attitudes towards energy security, questions around oil and gas, and the trade-off that is being offered here. Because if we take Europe, and this is the European Union more generally, and indeed the UK for that matter, not just about France, but there is a kind of mindset which basically says we need African countries for our energy transition yeah i.e they have metals that we need and in doing that we're going to try to incentivize them with investment and funds to help with their energy transition and but their energy transition can't possibly be like our energy transition because they don't have anything like the same access to fossil fuels right that we yeah. do i mean even if you just take electricity like in indonesia while 
25% of France's uranium is coming from there, then something like 20% only of the Niger population have access to electricity. If you then look at oil, where Niger is a pretty small scale oil producer, there have been some more recent oil discoveries. The company that's producing it is the China National Petroleum Company. They're helping to build a pipeline to Benin, which means that Niger will be able to export more. The message that European countries give off is in us helping you with the energy transition, we don't want you doing new fossil fuel orientated things. That isn't the message that the Chinese are giving off because it's not that China isn't committed to decarbonizing. It absolutely is, but it doesn't regard it as in the short to medium term and either or. Yeah, it looks again like European extraction. In in the same way. This is where I think the legacy of European imperialism in in Africa really matters because what the Europeans... What we in Europe are trying to do looks too much like neo-colonialism. Well, in part because it is. And I guess, Helen, the same can be said of Turkey, which is we talked about this towards the end of the first half. Whereas, again, they are, it seems old fashioned. A lot of this to me sounds very old fashioned. Competition between Russia and Turkey, you know, it just sounds like the Ottoman Empire previously. But that is a way to understand it, isn't it? I think that it is. And in the sense that, In order to see that, I think we just need to backtrack a little bit, which is to see the way in which Turkey has become not only a significant player in Libya because Mm. of its military intervention in 2020, but also in this part of Western Africa. So the same year that Turkey was intervening in Libya, it was signing an agreement with Niger to explore and mine minerals. Right. I mean, there was a military deal as well in like 2021. And I think you can see that Turkey has constructed a whole set of commercial networks across Francophone Africa. So in that sense, I think if it's a competition for resources, that actually there's a kind of China-Turkey-French dynamic. That's fascinating because... I was speaking to a British official and they said that there is this kind of saying internally that the French think we are far too soft on Turkey and we think the French are far too soft on Russia. And that is this long division that's happened. But you can see why, if that's what's happening in Africa. Well, I think that what you can see now is that there is a systemic, I would call it just a systemic competition between France and Turkey that has been evident since probably 2018, 19, right. certainly by 2000 and into 2020, and that it's got a number of different like dimensions to it. So if we backtrack on, I know we've talked about this moment before, there's the conflict in Syria. Yeah. And we have Macron in, I think it's late 2019, when he gives that interview to The Economist and talks about the brain death of yeah, NATO. Of NATO. Yeah. And what is he talking about? He's talking about... In this case, Turkish intervention in Syria. Yeah. And at the same time as that is going on, you can see really significant tension building between France and Turkey over the East Mediterranean and the gas resources. Yeah. yeah. And, And there the story is, and I think this does matter then for what Turkey's been doing in West Africa, is essentially during the 2010s, there were significant gas discoveries in the East Mediterranean. There were various partnerships made corporate partnerships and agreements between states about that 
gas. And obviously some of this turned on where the gas was. But essentially Turkey got shut out right. of it. So the players, Cyprus, Greece, Israel, Lebanon. Yeah. And if you listen to some of Erdogan's speeches from around that period, they're really quite dark and about going back to past history. If you go to 2020... Uh, he was sending off, you know, like warships into the Mediterranean with Ottoman names. And then <laughs> and France is sending one back. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. And if you then look at Turkey's intervention in Libya, the military intervention, around the same time, what they get out of it is a maritime agreement with Libya about right. the waters of the eastern Mediterranean that are advantageous to Turkey. Again, which sets off another round of this Turkish-French conflict. So if you then think of it as we've got Turkish-French competition in Syria, yeah, hence Macron's outburst, also in the East Mediterranean, and now we can see it actually in Francophone Africa um, pretty clearly. And if you listen to the position of what Erdogan's been saying in relation to what's going on in Niger, he's very against any possibility of military intervention. So if you actually had a situation where other West African states led by Nigeria were willing to do something that doesn't look like that they are, then you would have Turkish-French conflict over that. Does this explain Macron's strange intervention when you think back in Lebanon? Do you remember when he flies in after the that explosion and he's there greeting people as if he's a kind of colonial overlord there? And there, it was always felt very odd to me, but is that part of that story i think it may well be and i think if we go back to the very long like historical picture which you alluded to a few moments ago tom and we think of that conflict the geopolitical competition amongst the european powers for the resources of the middle east in the build-up to the first world war during the course of the first world war the aftermath of the first world war obviously the big victors of it were britain and france yeah yeah, And in that sense, the fact that they're the central European powers later in the Libyan intervention, there's lots of bits in between history you could draw, but there is a kind of like a line that, yeah, nothing ever like, changed, that yeah. runs like from that. And if you then say, what were they fighting over at that point? What was the geopolitical competition between the European countries, which also included Germany, is they were in significant part fighting over the oil resources of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And the result of the end of the Ottoman Empire, the creation of the Turkish nation state, was that the energy-rich parts of the former Ottoman Empire did not end up with Turkey. Right. It'd be like if Scotland was independent and its North Sea oil reserves were controlled by France. Yeah. And know. so the, but then if we're having a new round of like resource competition yeah. in this part of the world, which is now not just the Middle East, but North and like West Africa... This time, the Turkey is not getting left out of it in the so, way in which it did, I think, as a consequence of what happened in those first decades of the 20th century, or it lost at least. Because when you stand back and you think, oh, who's winning then here? Russia, it's very, it's very hard to judge. It's clearly not winning in Ukraine at the moment. There's obviously a stalemate, but right now it's in a difficult position and it's hard to know what it's getting in Africa. Its influence is clearly there and, and growing. But with Turkey, Turkey looks like it's winning and Britain and France 
look like their influence and their power and their control over these resources is declining, is lo- we're losing? I mean, I think if you look at the situation that Turkey was in, just sort of pre-pandemic, it was getting some geopolitical wins, perhaps. Yeah. It was projecting its influence further. Libya, I think, being the most important example of that. But it was also in a really quite financially precarious position, its currency. That is still a problem. Inflation. And these haven't gone away, but they also haven't really precipitated the kind of full-scale crisis that might have been anticipated. Yeah. So if you go back to that period, the immediate pre-pandemic period, you had quite a lot of division between the German and the French government where the Germans were more willing to economically help the Turkish government than, than the French, where you had quite divisions between the French and the German government about these conflicts in the East Mediterranean. So Turkey had some vulnerability. I think we can see that in some ways, Russia's war against Ukraine actually strengthened Turkey's yep. position. It mattered in terms of giving military help to Ukraine, particularly in the beginning part of the war. It's been the arbiter over the grain yes. yep. deals with Russia. His influence has spread, I think, in these West African countries since then. And the French, I think, are now in a really pretty difficult position in this respect, because if you say what were Macron's big geopolitical aims, say 2019, one of them was that reset with Russia, which he was very keen on. And obviously that's all fallen away because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the other was like trying to orientate the EU more to the Mediterranean questions and away, if you like, from the Russia yep. question. And yes, European Union's got to pay more attention to Mediterranean questions, but they're really difficult for the European Union, not least, I think, because you can see so acutely now the divisions between France and Italy that have come out quite strongly over the coup in Niger. And understandably so. From the Italian perspective, that's where the migration flows are directed through Italy and into the rest of Europe. So you can understand from their perspective why they're opposed to anything that could cause more chaos, a sort of a security vacuum in that part of the world. Just drawing the camera even further back, Helen, this seems to me to be part of this big story that's happening everywhere, which is the global competition between the United States and China, with America turning its attention towards China. In a way, it's not going to intervene in this part of the world, spend uh, precious resources on problems that don't really directly affect the United States. If there is a security vacuum in the Sahel, it doesn't directly affect the United States. Migration flows don't affect the United States. They have their own issues there. And they are turning towards China. And so Europe, and again, thinking back to what Obama was saying, that this is your neck of the woods, you deal with the situation. And it showed that we couldn't deal with the situation. Britain and France acting together are not powerful enough to intervene there. That was still dependent on the United States. And Europe itself doesn't seem cohesive enough or have the tools to act in the kind of way that the French want. Again, you can see the logic of the French grand strategy to turn Europe into a geopolitical actor that would then be able to defend 
its interests much more boldly, much more powerfully. But that's not working either, is it? Clearly, it doesn't look to me that Europe has the ability to project its influence into these places. And so weaker countries, really, like Turkey, if you compare Turkish GDP to French GDP or to the European Union's GDP, there's a vast disparity, the same with Russia. And yet it seems to me that Turkey is the one that is able to build its influence, get control over resources in a way that French, the French influence is retreating. Well, I think that this is where the history does matter. I think a fundamental problem for the French is the history of colonialism yeah and the fact that it carried on in the form in which it did which is essentially a let's just call it neo-colonialism for yeah a, a shorthand and that there is a anti-imperialist nationalist reaction against that going on in franco foreign africa it's not entirely across the board yet i'd say but i think that what these events in niger do i don't think they're the end of the line so to speak but they're pushing in that direction. And in that sense, the very fact that the French have been so deeply entrenched in West Africa is now part of what makes it more difficult for them. And, and, yeah, and it's inescapable. I mean, it's you might say it's a, a, another part of the European imperial, perhaps the last part of the European imperial world coming to an end in front of our eyes. Yeah, and the other thing you can't escape is that Europe's dependence on natural resources that you've alluded to and the fact that the United States is slowly turning its attention towards China. Europe, including Britain, looks in a pretty difficult spot over the long run. Yeah, I think that the American question is interesting in that if you looked earlier this year, you would actually say that the Americans and the Biden administration looked like it was actually paying quite a lot of attention in West Africa. As I said earlier, you know, the second biggest US military base in Africa is in Niger. Anthony Blinken went to Niger in March right. of this year. I think it's the first top-level American visit to the country that there had ever been. Niger is the largest recipient of US security assistance in West Africa. And it's quite striking for a country that really is as poor as Niger. Yeah, But there's been a Really clear difference in the reaction of the Biden administration to the coup compared to Macron. Yeah. They've been very reluctant. In fact, the Biden administration haven't used the language of the coup. They have cut off financial assistance. But I think I could be wrong about this, but looking on the surface, at least it looks like an American priority has been to keep the Wagner group out of these countries, particularly out of Niger, because... It's already there in in Mali, but it doesn't have the same American military base that, mm-hmm. that Niger does. But if the Wagner Group problem might be falling away because the Wagner Group's become such a nightmare for Putin himself, yeah, then you might say this is a reason why this is less important Interesting for the Biden administration than would otherwise be the case because it's bound up obviously with the 2000 and the operation, the military operations in the 2010s against Islamic State in the Middle East and then this part of northern West Africa after the Libya intervention. But that is nowhere near as important as the China question. And if Wagner Group is not over but very weakened, then I suspect that the American interest will fall away a bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be then the story of the emergence of a multipolar world. China's influence is growing. Russia is a great power that is chaotic, 
and it uses its influence in ways that feel anarchic. Turkey is growing. America is still extraordinarily powerful and will intervene to protect its interests, but primarily against against China. And it's hard to see where Europe is going, but we can see the retreat and the security. When there's a kind of vacuum, you can see the implications. And this is why I think West Africa, that what we've been talking about, is such a extraordinary story in that it tells you some, so much about the world that we live in. It today. is, and I think maybe we should finish here for this week because i'm sure we're going to be coming back to this is it also tells us something i think about the difficulties for the european union in internally acting as yes, a geopolitical yeah. actor and you can see that most clearly i think in the french italian differences they were there over libya and they're now there over Indonesia. from the point of view of the italian government i think it's hard to stress this enough i think they've used the language of it would be a catastrophe if there were a war in Niger. I don't think Macron wants that war, but he doesn't want this coup to stand. And regardless, in some sense of what happens, you can see that you just have the two of the big Mediterranean European countries, obviously the other one being like Spain, taking a really radically different view yeah. of these events. So in that sense, how does the European Union have a Mediterranean strategy, even if it can agree, and I don't necessarily exclude how the UK deals with these questions in that, I'm just saying the European Union, but how, even if it could agree on like what the importance of the eastern borders of the European Union are compared to the sea borders. Yeah, divided, challenges everywhere. In the Mediterranean. Yeah, oh good, it's utterly fascinating. Well, we'll leave it there and we'll return to these questions in future episodes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode and to everyone who sent in their questions. We are planning to do a special episode to answer them next week, so please keep them coming in. I also want to thank John McDermott from The Economist and John Lechner, a researcher and specialist on the Wagner Group, for guiding me through the politics of Africa. These Times is produced by Ewan Daughtry. Please keep tuning in, subscribing, liking the podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.